Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, we're less than a week to election day. If you've got that absentee ballot in your hand, read the instructions, fill it out. Drop it in your mailbox or take it to a drop box. If you haven't voted yet, make a plan to vote. Make a plan for you, your family, your friends. Get out there, gang. Now is the time. We don't have extra days. We don't have extra hours. Now is the time. Vote for the pro-democracy candidate in your state, in your county, in your district. Gang, we can do this if we do it together. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Harper and Liam Kerr, the co-founders of Welcome Pack, a Democratic-aligned pack that applies insurgent tactics to support pro-democracy and center-left candidates in swing districts. Well, that certainly sounds up our alley. Lauren and Liam, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Reed. Great to be here. So guys, I want to get into some of the work you're doing, how you think Democrats can run more effective campaigns, which I could do a week's worth of shows on. But first, I want to get into a little bit of y'all's background, how you got into politics and how Welcome Pack came to be. So, Lauren, let's start with you. What was your entry into politics and what steps brought you and Liam together? I studied public relations at the University of South Carolina and got connected to someone who used to work in the Columbia mayor's office, a former mayor, Steve Benjamin. So I interned in the mayor's office, interned for state Senator Mia McLeod. And literally just accidentally got into politics, to be quite honest. Really loved interning for the mayor. So then he asked me to work for him when I graduated. So I worked for him for three years doing comms and policy and then got into campaign. So that was my entry, but loved it and have been in it since then. And Liam, how about you? Yeah, my background was in direct service, you know, AmeriCorps, nonprofit work, and kind of stumbled into the advocacy side of that world. And then later with a group called Democrats for Education Reform, seeking to push President Obama's education agenda, which had a lot of bipartisan elements to it, and realized working at the center end of the Democratic Party, there's not a clear team, especially at the state, local level. And so while the extreme end of the Democratic Party has a very clear, coherent faction and team, there's not a lot of people to ride with at the center end of the party. And if we're going to expand to have a majority, and it's never been more important than now, we got to go bring those people in and also build a team for us within the party. And so we started asking around about who thinks we need to go up to New Hampshire and start talking to more independents in 2020. And one of the first people that came up was, hey, Lauren Harper, let's sit down, let's talk about it. And the two of us kind of hashed out an approach to going out and everybody was talking about swing voters at that time. And we said, we need to talk to them and with them and bring them in to the process in New Hampshire and South Carolina. And so Welcome Party kind of naturally flowed from there. So Lauren, the Welcome Party, this is welcoming folks to the Democratic Party, maybe welcoming them back. To the Democratic Party, how did you guys come up with the name? And then give us a little sense of how Welcome Pack came to be specifically. When we say Welcome Party, we don't mean a third party. We are definitely not advocates for third parties. 
But we do want people to feel, like you mentioned, welcome in the Democratic Party, whether it's voting for a Democrat for the first time or haven't voted for a Democrat for four or five, six cycles, whatever it may be. We wanted people to feel that they were welcome in a sense of a tribe where people could know that it's a big tent, right? You don't have to agree on everything. One of the things that we really advocate for at Welcome Pack and Welcome Party is that we don't have like these purity tests that people have to pass. And so we really advocate for empathy bringing people in, having a conversation, being able to appeal to people in their authenticity and align on what we believe is a clear objective for a lot of folks, which is America, right? We're all very patriotic, love our country and want the best for it. And so we want to welcome people in to the Democratic Party to be able to preserve and protect the American democracy that we have come to love. So Liam, you know, I travel a lot and I get asked this question almost everywhere I go. Again, I'm not a Republican anymore. I'm an independent. I'm not a Democrat, but we party with the Democrats at this point, right? Which is, why aren't Democrats better at messaging? You laid out, I thought, a pretty clear understanding of the different wings, I'll call them, as far as the Democratic Party is concerned. I think that there is one wing that is, to use an avian reference, is shorter, but flaps a lot faster and makes a lot more noise while it flaps. And then there's the larger wing that flaps more slowly and creates hardly any noise while it does it. And I will stop with the bird metaphors. So why aren't the Democrats better at messaging? Most important part of that question is the second and third words. Who are the Democrats? We've gone from spending a billion dollars as a party per elections to five billion. How many of those five billion does the chair of the DNC control? Not much. How much of that is controlled by outside entities, local committees, individual campaigns? And so there is no one set apparatus that sets the message for the Democrats. Part of that is the parties are different. A third of the country is conservative, more than a third of the country is moderate, and you get a quarter of the country that's liberal. So within that, you got about 8% of people that social scientists say are progressive activists. And so those 8% might only be a third of the liberals and less than a fifth of what it takes to win an election. But as you said, they can set the tone because they don't have to worry about winning elections, right? What is the squad doing today? They're planning on how to change the narrative after the election. They don't have to worry about their own seats. And so you have these perverse incentives where all the really focused energy, particularly in blue, deep blue areas, can afford to focus on winning the battle within the party, while a rather disparate set of the Democrats or individual organizations or leaders trying to build up that center, they've got to focus on winning elections. And it's not really a fair fight within the party based on what their jobs are. And so we need to focus more at that center end of the party on learning from what the far left has done well. Why is everybody looking at that short wing that flaps a lot? And what can the center end of the party do a little better? And let's bring that same spirit. But Lauren, if you identify as a Democrat, right, a big D Democrat, either as an activist or a politician running for office, and your intention is not to win broadly, you could go be a Democratic Socialist, green or whatever you want to go be. But they, I think at their core, realize that not a lot of people electing Democratic Socialists. So they need the Democratic Party's name and brand, but it seems that they oftentimes, to Liam's point, are happy to watch moderates lose or hang things around moderates' necks that are fundamentally unhelpful to getting elected in a diverse electorate. So tell me, why can't everybody win? Isn't everybody who's a Democrat winning, isn't that overall better? It is because, like you just said, we have a two-party system, right? So that's why Senator Bernie Sanders hasn't ran as an independent in 2020. 2019, he ran as a Democratic candidate, right? 
I really think that they genuinely believe in their policy stances and their views and their vibes, right? But it's just a matter of how do we kumbaya a little bit better, but also ensure that the folks who are getting the most airtime, quite frankly, media time, people who are getting the most mentions on Twitter, whatever, how do we make sure that they're not running the show and channeling the narrative that we mentioned because they're not having to protect seats better, R plus two and three and four, right? There's so many swing states and even swing states that are so critical this election cycle where you have to be more mainstream and people think that mainstream equates to being watered down and that's just not true, right? Um, I think that people need to be able to accept that as a stance a lot more. So Liam, what are y'all trying to do to help bring a little bit of balance back to the Democratic side of the aisle in campaigning specifically? One thing that those far left groups did do really well is they found places where there were inefficiencies in the market, where they could have a really big impact with a marquee win by flipping just a small amount of votes. The amount of votes AOC got to win her primary against Joe Crowley, that's like you can't get elected student body president at an SEC school for that. And so we took that same approach saying we want to be Justice Democrats, but for the center, Justice Democrats, but for our party. So where can we find races where we can reach out to people like you who have left the Republican Party you know, it might only be 7% of voters to bring over the finish line. And so we opened a pack last fall and we said, we want to welcome in former Republicans and we want to find those races where a relatively small amount can make a difference. And so we're one candidate we're supporting is former Arnold Schwarzenegger aide who's running as a Democrat on a really strong big tent message against a corrupt incumbent, Ken Calvert in Riverside County in California. Who's the candidate? So Will Rollins is a former prosecutor, former aide to Governor Schwarzenegger. And so we're, uh, you know, with the closing message pointing out, hey, Governor Schwarzenegger and his team, including with Will Rollins, they cut your taxes in California, right? So if you want someone in, to bring people together and deliver economic value to you, you should look at him instead of someone who closed your mortgage interest deduction. But Calvert's one of those guys, right? I would say even in the before times, as we call him, was on the conservative end of things, but was by no means nuts. And now he's a nut, which means he's a cynic. He didn't believe any of this shit. But he knows in his district he's got to do it to win, because I think this is one of those things, guys, as we're talking about a part of the Democrats. The part that Calvert worries about most is the Republican base, because if he gets out of line, they'll just stay home because they don't care. They also have that level of purity. I think the difference between the two parties is that the fringe of the Republican Party is not the fringe. The fringe is now people like me or who I used to be. The majority of Republican voters are either true believers in this stuff that Calvert and others espouse. And then there's another big chunk of them who are fellow travelers, sympathizers, whatever. You know, oh, I, I don't like my own party, but I'll be damned if I'm going to vote for those crazy socialist Democrats. And I hear that everywhere. When you think about the concept of a primary, right? And I think one thing that we do really emphasize with the Welcome Party and Welcome Pack is independent GOTV for a primary, right? So that's what we started. Liam talked about our origin story, right? The reason why we got into the game was because we wanted to make sure that people were voting in these primaries because to your point, if Ken Calvert or anybody else, like Tom Rice from South Carolina, like got boosted out of his seat because he voted to support the election results and to impeach Trump. And he had no shot, right? Because after he did that, the Republican Party that comes out in these primaries, they're the deciding vote for who's on the ballot, right? So if there were more moderate Republicans who were able to win, we wouldn't have such a sense of urgency for what we do at Welcome Pack. But because 
the primary process for Republican parties creates only extremist candidates or at least extremist presenting candidates, right? Like you said, because King Calvert probably doesn't think like this normally, but he knows he has to appeal to these voters. So that's why we have to do what we do with the Democratic side, because we are at least the party that we believe can moderate the partisanship that we see in this country. You know, you talked about the primaries. It's an interesting way to think about it in Wyoming. Liz Cheney lost by significant margin in her Republican primary. But I thought was interesting was that three Democrats ran in the Democratic primary. Now, the sun will come up in the West before a Democrat wins that seat. And so I thought it was interesting, like in a state here in Utah, where I live, the Democratic Party said, we're going to lay off the U.S. Senate race because we've got 13 percent registration here. Democrats going to lose by 40 to Mike Lee, found Evan McMullen, conservative, independent, right, willing to stand, maybe is able to draw a coalition. And that was the thing is that I think we figured out that Cheney needed 15,000 Democrats to re-register as Republicans in Wyoming to win her primary. The problem was with three Democrats already running, that was never going to happen. And so I'm curious, too, if you guys are seeing that where there are places where Again, it could be a Wyoming, it could be a very red district where you could say, hey, guys, like whoever the Democrat is here in a primary or even in a general is going to lose by 50. But is there another option in those places? Have you guys taken any look at that? Yeah, and we make the analogy there, you know, saving our democracy is going to look more like a platypus than like a unicorn. <laughs> a unicorn. They're going to steal that. You can picture a unicorn, right? You get a horse, put a horn on it, you know, it flies, you get a little some rainbow stuff. Everyone can picture that. So everyone's like, oh, we'll just get the third party that can go in this place. We can get the XYZ. We're going to go do this nice, simple thing that you can all picture in your mind. But it looks more like a platypus. And what you're describing, how do you step down and have someone like Evan McMullen win in Utah? How do you use your vote strategically in Wyoming? How do we do something like encourage split ticket voting in states where Republican gubernatorial candidates are clearly going to win? But we can encourage people to have power by voting. Hey, as Lauren said, we want your vote if it's your first vote. We want your vote if it's your only vote, too. You might vote Republican up and down the ticket. But if you vote Democrat for one race that really matters, you can kind of get your agita out of both parties at the same time and really have power by making people fight over you instead of just fighting at the ends. As you guys are going out, how many different states are you working in right now? We're in three states right now, and we were in two different states in the last presidential cycle. So we've been in five states total. So what three states are you in now? Colorado, California, and Ohio. And in Ohio, are you guys working in the U.S. Senate race there? Yes. And how's that going? So on the split ticket vote in Ohio, you know, we have more than one out of five Mike DeWine voters are not voting for J.D. Vance. Really? You know, on the Democratic side, when they, you know, the magic of 2008 of getting people out to vote, the social science there, if you say voter turnout's going to be high, more people are likely to vote. If you say it's low, even though your vote is worth more, you're less likely to vote. When it comes to ticket splitting, it's similar. If you say, we're so deeply polarized, everyone's either going to vote straight Republican or straight Democrat. And that's all we ever hear from the media now is polarized, polarized, polarized. You don't get as many clicks by saying, hey, actually, you know what? In the majority of states that had Senate and governor's elections in 2018, the Republican Senate candidate trailed significantly behind the gubernatorial candidate. And maybe if people split their tickets in Ohio, Democrats could keep the Senate and Republican voters could still feel Republican-ish at home as someone they feel comfortable with. And so that is Tim Ryan's path to victory, clearly, is with those split-ticket voters. And you have more than one in five who are not yet with J.D. Vance. And so in that closing week, it is people feeling comfortable to say, yeah, I can mostly go red on my ticket, but I'm going to have a lot of power by balancing that out the same way I did in 2018. 
when I voted Republican for governor. And by the way, the polls were dead on in 2018. DeWine was five points ahead of the Senate nominee. Right now, he's 10 points ahead of J.D. Vance in absolute terms. One in 10 voters are with DeWine and not yet with Vance. So, Lauren, I mean, we we have a little message we use for what we call our ban in line voters, soft Republicans, like six to 10 percent by our estimation of Republican voters, which is flip it or skip it, which is if you feel good voting for Tim Ryan in Ohio, vote for Tim Ryan. Flip that vote. If you can't, you can't get across the line to a Democrat, skip the race, right? Leave J.D. Vance blank, because what we see is that in 2020, in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Georgia, yes, Joe Biden got more votes. But the reason Joe Biden got more votes was because there were like somewhere between, given the state, 15 and 50,000 Republican voters who left Trump blank, which that undervote meant all the difference. Now, do we know if some of those people crossed over? Some of them probably did. Did some of them just hold their nose and say, I can't deal with it? Clearly they did. We don't have to win all the votes. We have to win enough to win. And I think to use Liam's platypus metaphor, you know, that's what it's going to look like. It's not going to look like red and blue, you know, deep blue, lighter blue, deep red, lighter red. It's going to have to be, I'm not going to use purple because that's overdone and it's amateurish. But Lauren, so when you guys are out in the field, how are you guys being received both by voters, but also by fellow Democrats? Yeah. So we have a slate of candidates in Ohio at the state legislative level. So we're talking state house. And we have been encouraging them to have meet and greets with voters who are independents and moderate Republicans to say, just sit down with me for a meal. I mean, we had people meet at a Mexican restaurant. We had a sip and paint party, right? Like whatever it is where people are like getting together to talk to these candidates to at least hear them out on their issues, right? And that's been working so well for them. They've been having so many anecdotes of people saying, you know, I have a Trump yard sign in my yard, but I'm voting for you, Nancy. We're like, you're like, okay, we'll take it, right? We'll take it. You know, you don't necessarily need to know the methodology of why they're doing it, but we'll take, like you said, flip it or skip it. So if we are able to meet people where they are, not just physically, but ideologically, people really do receive that well. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough in the discourse is like so much of voter interaction that is one-on-one is so impactful. People think about, you know, even just like from an organizing perspective, you know, somebody probably won't text you back when you're sending out text at a text bank. Somebody might hang up with you when you're on a phone call, on a phone bank, right? When you're volunteering. But when you get to somebody's door, like it's a lot less likely that they'll slam the door in your face, right? Like they're going to at least say, who are you here with? Right. That's at least a conversation. Right. That's a conversation where you can get into that discourse of, you know, well, why should I vote for you as a Democratic candidate? I'm a Republican. You came to my house. But uh, hey, you you didn't skip my house. But these candidates in state house races in Ohio, they're going to doors that are Republican and they're having these conversations. And I think that it'll really help them. I was just in as we're recording this, I was in Nevada in Clark County this past weekend canvassing, which I had not done in. Well, let's put it this way. Y'all were probably in kindergarten since the last time I actually knocked on doors. And there was one gentleman I spoke to yesterday as we're recording this, 62-year-old African-American man, came to the door. First, I think he said, I'm not going to vote. And so we just, you know, the woman I was with sort of went through some of the policy points and he said, I, they're all liars. They're all, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, look, I get it. I get it. He's like, what we need to do is lock arms. And I said, that's why I'm here. Like, this is probably the only crossover either of us is going to have like this in the recent past or the near future. And I said, but you know, look, you have a choice. It's your God-given American right not to participate. And I hope you won't take that choice. I said, 
But if you choose, let me tell you, there is a difference. There is a fight here. They are not the same thing. The Republican candidate or the candidates you choose to vote for as Republicans want to do bad things. They talk about it all the time. I said the Democrats may not make you as happy as you want them to. And I get that. But all I'm asking you to do is not just give up. Because when you don't participate, the bad guys are going to win. And he looked at me and said, I'll take one more look at my ballot. Now, I don't know if he's going to participate, but I'm glad I had the conversation. And I think that we're seeing that a lot of places with, I think, probably mostly moderate voters for whom both their own party and the other party is like, just shut up. You're crazy. You say stuff I don't like. You make it hard for me to defend it to myself, let alone friends and family. Can't you get your act together? And so I'm wondering, like, you know, Liam, what's been the response from other Democrats? Because I can tell you that when a new voice in the big D Democratic Party wants to emerge that isn't in lockstep with a more progressive vision, that the progressives can be pretty nasty. Yeah, I've got some nasty tweets. I've got some nasty voicemails. But when we think about the tactics that we take and we think about the arguments they make against those, they have nothing to stand on. And so they don't want to engage. I mean, AOC at one point said explicitly, sometimes the Democratic Party can be too big of a tent. So I don't know which voters in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin they want to kick out of the tent, but they need to be forced to have that conversation because we're trying to bring people in. That's the structure of what we're doing. And so if they want to argue for the smaller tent, make that explicit. Say what you mean. You want a smaller tent, you want to kick people out, and you want to lose. Addition by subtraction. Exactly. And we lose the argument when... They want to debate every individual policy point. We'll say, you know, you end up talking to some guy from Brooklyn with three degrees, no kids, and he'll tell you, oh, you're, you know, a murdering corporate Democrat because, you know, you want to give dental at this level and I want to give dental plus two. No matter what argument you have, they can always be bigger and better and morally look down on you. But if you structure the debate, of like, well, do you want to let more people in? Do you want to be honest with them, meet them where they are, be empathetic? That's the debate we want to have in the party. And so they actually don't want to engage on it directly. Well, and Lauren, what I've seen is spending now nearly three years up close and personal with many Democrats is one is that the diversity of the Democratic Party is its strength, but it's also its weakness in which there are many communities, you know, talking to leaders in Detroit, Philadelphia, even just regular voters in Las Vegas this weekend. It's a common theme. They make promises year in and year out, and our lives don't change. That's one. Two is the unwillingness or inability to understand that just because you're the guy that lives in Brooklyn with three degrees does not mean that anybody outside of your neighbors at the coffee shop agree with any of that crap, and that the issues, and I saw a lot of them up close and personal this weekend, that folks are facing are a hell of a lot more existential, right? Rent, food, life and death children, older parents, whatever the case might be, steady job, steady employment, whatever. So it's all well and good to talk about dental insurance. Like if you can't pay the rent, if you can't feed your kids, like, yes, you should go to the dentist. But how many folks that I talked to yesterday that were worried about, oh yeah, you know, I've got my twice annual checkup scheduled for next week. Like if that were their problem, I think they would think it was a dream. Yeah. And that's actually something I was chewing on this weekend, to be honest, because when we do polls, and granted, I'm not a pollster, so I don't know. Maybe they do these things. You know what? Nobody else does either. They just call themselves that. <laughs> there you go. You know what? There you got it, Reed. There you got it. But I was like, 
when we do these polls, like I feel like we are asking people like, okay, do you care about this, this, and this? But it's like, I feel like we need to add a question of like, compared to the other things that are running through your mind every day, how do these things rank? Because you're right, like, you know, you can ask a voter, like, what are their top three issues? And they might say healthcare, housing, and guns. But like, compare those things to, like you said, the day-to-day stuff. And it's like, how well do they rank against, like, I got to figure out what time to pick up my kid because my shift is going to go later. Like, that stuff is real, right? And so, you know, I said I was chewing on it. I didn't say I had a solution for it yet. But, you know, I was thinking about it. It's like, how do we find a way to, you know, balance both of those things, right? Like that voters care about the issues, right? They care about healthcare, housing, guns, like I said, but they also care about these other things that are pressing in their minds because of their day-to-day lives, right? Again, don't have the answer for it. But to go back to what you said before, too, you know, it is a big tent Democratic Party. And like, that's what we talk about with Welcome Pack is like, our disclaimer on it is like, we want to build a big tent Democratic Party that wins. And so even to Liam's point just now is, you know, again, you can get as niche as you want on this and that Green New Deal, whatever, right? Not that I don't care about climate, because I promise I do. But, you know, it's like a matter of how niche do you get until you are literally kicking people out or it's like, okay, well, I was agreeing with you when you were out here. And then as though you got more and more narrow into the nicheness of this issue, that's where you lost me. Right. And so, you know, we got a lot of work to do and we don't really focus on issues, but we do need to at least agree on the issue of, you know, I feel like as a voter, I feel like all politicians don't really care about you, but da da da. like, okay, yeah, that's a valid point and a valid concern. But if people weren't trying to, you know, restrict your voting access, oppress your vote, like you could have that stance, but they do and they are. And I was talking to a voter registration advocate here in Texas a few weeks ago, and she was talking about like, especially with black voters, like you just mentioned. And she said, I can't remember who she said she was talking to, but she was like, when I was talking to maybe my grandmother or something, but she was like, well, in the 60s, when black voters were voting, they were voting for a white Democratic candidate that would probably call them the N-word to their face. And they still voted, right? They still made sure they got to the polls, right? And so it's like a balance of like, okay, yes, we have day-to-day stuff that we're dealing with, but it's also like, if they voted for someone who literally, like I said, would call them N-word to their face because they knew how important it was to vote, it's like, how do we compel that message into people and saying like, okay, yes, but this is still so important. You've got to vote. Again, we're figuring this out, but that's where we are. Well, look, I mean, you can have your individual policy thing, right? Climate, housing, taxes, whatever it is, they're all important. But if the system as we know it, which is already pretty creaky, goes down altogether, good fucking luck ever bringing up any of that stuff again, right? Like it's gone. And as the listeners know, I am something of a history nerd. When bad guys take power, they move fast. And until and unless you are willing to accept that the people that we are working against do have bad intent and they say it every damn day, right? Like they don't hide it. The bad guys never hide it. They tell you exactly what they're going to do, right? And then people are still shocked all these years later when they go do it. If Kevin McCarthy says we're going to cut aid to Ukraine, we're going to impeach Joe Biden, we're going to spend two years on Hunter, do everything we can to derail social security, the debt ceiling, crash the government. That's what they're going to do. You know why? Because they are in the thrall of 
the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim Jordans of the world, but also of their voters, right? Especially their primary voters who expect that when you say something crazy like that, you're going to deliver on the crazy. And it's crazy to me, Liam, and I wonder if you guys are seeing this, like, do folks just not believe it? Do they not buy it? Do they think it's not as bad as it's going to be? I'm curious because like, this is all we ever talk about, but like, how are you seeing this as you're talking to voters? So I think when we want to know why are voters not scared enough of what Republicans say out loud that they will do, it's because they're weighing it against what Democrats in the 2020 presidential election were saying that they would do, even though they couldn't and never would. And so we do have a caricature of Democrats. In the CBS poll that was out from the past weekend here with one week to go in the election, you know, a majority of voters believe that if Democrats have control, they will cut police funding. And six in 10 believe if Democrats take control, they will have an open border with Mexico. Democrats are in control right now, and that's not happening. But the 2020 presidential election in the early primaries was largely built around advocating for issues that were one-upping to the left constantly. And that went unchecked until the voters checked it. The Democratic Party voters said, stop, we want to go with Biden. And we come to the present day, and that's still where we are. Seven in 10 voters think Republican control will lead to lower energy prices. And the voters actually know, they believe that you know a majority of voters also believe the Republicans will pass a national abortion restriction. And a majority of voters believe Republicans, if they take control, will overturn democratically won elections. And so the facts are there, the arguments are there, but we haven't checked our own party. Only the voters check the party in the 2020 presidential primary. Now, Democratic primary voters, again, in most states have put forward more moderate candidates, but we have not, within the party, checked the argument. That is what we hear, that we have too extreme here and too extreme there. And unfortunately, we haven't checked it enough within our party so that reality comes forward and that the reality of who most Democratic candidates, particularly in swing seats and districts are, are these mainstream Democrats that, yes, make the compromises that were mocked in many cases in the 2020 presidential primary. So no less than Saul Alinsky, rabble rouser of the left in the 60s and 70s, wrote a book called Rules for Radicals, said, if you start at zero and you get to 30, you didn't lose 70%. You got 30% of the way from where you started. And it seems like there's so much, and you know, look, both parties have this issue, but all or nothing, right? Like climate change is an enormous problem. It's a global problem. It is not going to be solved overnight. It's not going to be solved in a straight line trajectory because nothing in life is straight line trajectory. And so it's, do you want to do the things you can while you're here, or are you willing to take zero in the name of purity. And I was out in a very fancy neighborhood this summer. And I said to one of the hosts, do you want purity or do you want to win? And she looked at me and she goes, I guess I want to win. And I sort of gave her a head tilt, you know, like the dog that's heard a noise it doesn't understand. And she said, well, it sure doesn't sound like I want to win, does it? And I'm like, it doesn't. You know, electoral politics in this country is a zero sum game. Someone will win and someone will lose, right? We're not a parliamentary system. For the most part, you're going to have two choices. And so, like, how do we start to explain that, like, 
there's no such thing as instant progress, right? It's not compromise, it's moving forward. But also it's like the definition of democracy and even winning an election is not that you get everything you want. Um, it's that you have an opportunity to make your case on behalf of the people you represent and that you get to have the conversation. American politics has never been an easy business. But Liam, talk to me about why you think some Democratic candidates aren't willing to do what it takes to win. Well, I think two important things you said that are connected. The voters who just say they're all liars, people who could be our Democratic base voters saying, well, they're all liars. And I think to go back to Alinsky, Alinsky is viewed as a radical. I mean, the book is literally called Rules for Radicals, Inspiration on the Left. The ultimate moderate Hillary Clinton wrote her senior thesis at Wellesley on Alinsky. Obama named Alinsky as uh, inspiration to him in Chicago. And what did Alinsky say? He is a status quo-ish mental outlook on the political world. He says in Rules for Radicals, I come at the world as it is, not as I wish it were. I come to the world as it is. He lived in reality and tried to drive home to the left. You need to live in reality. And we've constructed alternate realities that people can live in. Alternate realities where you can get all your information from fellow college-educated Democrats. Whole information ecosystems where you can just live in that bubble. You know, I think one thing that came to mind in the 2020 presidential debates and, you know, again, this was the last election cycle, and this is why people think of Democrats as they are and what we need to change going forward. You know, one candidate started talking about a realistic health care proposal, and Elizabeth Warren interrupted and said, why would you run for president to tell us what we can't do? A mockery of reality. That's why people feel lied to. And that's why we can't deal with the stakes right now. We can't just focus on winning because there is so much distraction within this world on the left. Well, and Warren, in an, I don't know if it was that debate or another debate, said the greatest thing about this debate is that we haven't mentioned the name Donald Trump once. Hey, you know what? The whole campaign was against Donald Trump. Like, I hate to tell you that. We are, at least for this moment in our history, unfortunately, in a post-policy place, right? Yet policy matters. Absolutely, it does. But right now, we're in a place where it is existential. It is good versus bad. It is darkness versus light. And we need a hell of a lot more people to work on that. And I'm certainly glad we are getting to know you guys. And I hope that we'll get to know you better as we move into the next few days, as we hit Election Day 2022. And, you know, we'll take a nap and then we'll get back to Election Day 2024. But before I let y'all get out of here, Liam, where can we find you online? I'm on Twitter at Liam Kerr. We are Welcome Pack online at welcomepack.org. And Reed will be mailing you your pitch to register as a Democrat moving forward. Always welcome. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate that. And Lauren, where can our listeners find you online? I'm online at Lauren J.H. Harper. All right. As always, everybody, guys, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok oh, at Reed Galen. Look out. Are you doing the dances? I do not dance. No one wants to see that. Okay. Okay. And on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Liam, Lauren, thank you so much for joining me today. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln 
And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.